Acts 17 review, so we'll pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this record of the early church and um, how your sovereignty has just guided us, uh, not only from the beginning of creation, but from the beginning of uh, the early church and how you just work all things out for your good and your glory. And so we are just uh, amazed by the uh, sufficiency and authority of Scripture and your wisdom behind it. And so we ask that you would just uh, let us uh, go through this today, God, and understand and, and most importantly, Lord, help apply it to our life as we build for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yeah, so Acts 17, we are continuing through Paul's um, second missionary journey. And this is, anybody remember the year? We talked about it last time. Around what year we're at? 55? Around, well, actually, this part is somewhere between AD 51 and 54. We're not sure, but yeah, it's uh, pretty close. Um, He is now entering into uh, Thessalonica. And remember um, last week, you know, Paul was sort of... um, they wanted to go into Asia. They wanted to go into Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit stopped them from doing that. And we know from the history of the church that those are hotbeds now. The, the Christianity flourished through that whole area of Asia. And it teaches us that we don't always know what God is intending, why he's calling us sometimes. Well, we know we have an idea of the general why, but we don't know in his uh, specific plan for us what he has for us when he calls us out into doing something. Um, he, oftentimes it's opposite or different uh, than we thought. Sometimes it's exactly what we thought for a time, and then things change. <clears throat> but something very unique happened with Paul. After he got these, um, uh, whatever they were, uh, he, he, he was told by the Holy Spirit and the, all the brothers agreed not to go down into this, uh, into Asia and um, all these different areas in that, in, uh, in that territory. He then gets a vision. And that vision was what? Who remembers what that vision was? It wasn't a television. The man of Macedonia. Yes, the man of Macedonia. And what did he say? What was it? Come help us. And so immediately this vision was probably not only very strong, but it was also confirmed. Okay. And that's the one thing we have to remember, regardless of what your views are on, on dreams and visions and those sorts of things, whether God still uses that to communicate or not, you have to make sure that what you do know, you always keep as the first, uh, point of application, and that is the scriptures. So if you get a dream or a vision, and it's not consistent with what the scriptures say, then you have to see what you ate the night before that's different in your diet. (laughs) Because sometimes when we eat weird things, we get weird dreams. And uh, last night I had a dream. I was, um, I showed up to preach, and I had a cutoff sweatshirt on and, and short jogging shorts. And uh, brothers were like, "That's you can't be wearing that." And I was like, "It's okay. I got stuff in my car." And I went out to the car, and by the time I got it back up to the pulpit to start to preach, couldn't find my notes. 
And uh, it was a night, it was the whole night, this whole detailed like struggled in my bag and it was just, and so I'm chalking that one up to whatever uh, I ate yesterday at Gianmarco's restaurant with the kids. <laughs> and so, but sometimes people really depend upon dreams and visions and they go too far uh, to the point of it's almost, <clears throat> it's almost, they take it as pure revelation from God. And so you have to be really careful with that. But for any, for, for, for uh, uh, whatever else's sake here, we have, we see now God's, what was God's purpose? Like, wh- what do we speculate was God's purpose for sending Paul over to Macedonia from chapter 16? Where did we end up there? How did that end? Anyone remember? He was um, in Philippi, right? He was jailed and the jailer became a believer. Yeah. So God takes this... <clears throat> Unknown person, not somebody that's, uh, you know, very, uh, maybe probably not very reputable uh, as it relates. I shouldn't say reputable. Well-known, not a very high stature job. He's a jailer. He works in the prisons. He's a a correction officer, you know. And uh, he had his eye on this guy. And he called uh, Paul and his team to go over there and to save this man and his household and so it was really, really neat. And there was other stuff too that happened, right? There was, there was probably a lot, of, a lot more that we can go into there. But now we also see part two of that calling because now Paul is not only did he get called over that Asian Sea, which is not an easy trip to make. <clears throat> he went into Philippi, but now he's starting to go down through Macedonia. If you look at your maps, you'll see that. He's traveling down. So God has is, is really, you know, had a bigger purpose in the bigger purpose. And it's going to keep getting bigger because Paul is going to end up um, in Corinth and in Athens. And he's going to end up going backtracking uh, eventually to Ephesus, which isn't backtracking, but it, it's in Asia where he was prevented from going. And so we're going to see that God's sovereign hand. And, um, and now we're, we're going to see some more. Um, really cool reasons why he brought Paul over. So we have to learn from that. You know, we have to understand that God's purposes are God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So the number one thing is that we have to be in a position to be able to receive from God. And then we have to be in a position that we're willing to step out in faith when he calls us to do something. And that may not always be an easy thing, um, but when you have that relationship with Christ, you can bank on it and that you know that he is going to, you can trust in him to, to guide you and lead you um, and, 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 and not go too crazy about the decisions that you have to make. Trust in the Lord and take that next step. And that's what we see Paul constantly doing, taking the step in front. So he goes, um, he leaves uh, Philippi and he goes down uh, through um, Ampiphilus and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. 
<clears throat> so we have a very, uh, we have a very um, poignant, very specific proclamation that's being made here. And we have to really pay attention to this because I think this is sort of where we oftentimes, again, I've, I've been preaching this to you guys ever since I've come here. We, we focus sometimes on um, life after death and feeling that's the ultimate goal when really the ultimate goal is life after life after death. You understand that? So life after death is present with the Lord in heaven. But then you are going to be rose again from the dead. And you are going to then have that other new life, which is eternal life in a resurrected, renewed body on a resurrected, or I shouldn't say resurrected, but on a renewed heaven and earth. God is not making all new things. He's making all things new. He's taking what he's already made and he's renewing it. And the key, the, 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 the linchpin on that is that Jesus rose from the dead, but that he is in fact the Messiah. Now, as a, as a side, before we get, I want to focus in on that for a second, but just to give you some, some historical context here, you, you know, he goes to Thessalonica and, and we know that Paul wrote how many letters to, to that city? Two. Two, good. To the Thessalonians. First and second Thessalonians was written pretty much right after Paul left, or maybe even as he was leaving, he started writing it because it's dated around A.D. 55. So Paul's fresh out of Thessalonica. Who knows what the, mo- what the general theme is of both books of the Thessalonians? The second coming, right? The return of Jesus. <clears throat> the return of the risen Christ. The return of the risen Christ to be the expectation, to, to fulfill the ultimate expectation and promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Israel, and obviously to all those Gentiles that come in too, Christ returning as king. Okay, and so the return of Christ in Thessalonians, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is the rapture, um, where we are, we are, the Bible says we're snatched away, um, is at the end. Now, whether or not you want to believe that we're going to physically be snatched away and go up into the air. Um, when you look at this from a, um, a literary perspective, that's a literary technique known as apocalyptic literature. And it's uh, basically, um, uh, the best way to say it is uh, extreme language to demonstrate super significant theological teachings. So we're using this extreme language. Okay, we're not, my belief and the way that I interpret the scriptures and to want to teach you guys is that we're not going to be pulled out to only come back with the risen Christ. The, the language there that Paul is using is very familiar language with, uh, with, these, uh, with, this, with these Roman provinces because this is exactly what would happen when Caesar would come or a returning governor like Pontius Pilate. If Pontius Pilate, when he would leave two or three times a year from Jerusalem, 
he would go up until his, uh, into his um, uh, uh, stronghold up above in the north. And then when he would come into Jerusalem for the festivals, the, the whole Roman army or, or battalions of the Roman army in Jerusalem would go out and meet him and bring him back. And the word meet, I mentioned this from the pulpit a couple weeks ago, in the Greek, in that term is apenthesis, which means to meet and bring back. And that's what they use when they talk about, and Paul uses this word in, in Acts, I think, 22 or 23, when he, he, his ship comes in and the brothers come and they meet him and they bring him back to the church. So technically what we are going to do, what Paul is trying to tell us, um, is that we are going to meet Christ at his return and welcome him back as king as he returns to his earth on a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And the dead at that point, the trumpet's going to blow, 1 Corinthians 15. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and those that are alive will follow. And then all things in the, ch- in the twinkling of an eye will change. They will be made new. And so why am I bringing that up here? Because, of the, because just because Thessalonica was mentioned? No, but because we have to assume the context here, especially as we get to um, verses um, 7, is that they are, were taught by Paul. That's why he wrote them this letter to reiterate the things that he was teaching, that what Christ is, is more than just somebody that's saving us from hell. He is literally the anointed one. He is literally the, the Messiah. When you see the word Christ, that means anointed one. It means Messiah, or I should say that means Messiah, and Messiah means the anointed one, which means the anointed king. So this was the teaching that Paul was giving them, that Christ is literally risen from the dead and literally reigning as king right now from a throne in heaven, but only for a time. Like in Acts chapter one, why do you stand gazing? The same Jesus that went up is going to come back in the same way. He's going to appear. There's going to be an unveiling when he comes, right? He's not coming from outer space. He's coming from the dimension of heaven. And so what we see here is Christ, the word Christ. And it says, as some of them, oh, we, well, we, we, we just read that. But the Jews becoming zealous, this is verse five, jealous. <clears throat> we, we see a lot of this, but the Jews, but the Jews, we're going to see that a lot here. Becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, so they basically went down to this hotbed and they, they, they grabbed some, some mercenaries, some gang guys, probably people that were just, you know, hanging out in the city and they recruited them because nobody liked, the, nobody liked the, this new sect that was coming in, okay? They didn't like the Jews. Right around this time, Claudius, who was the Roman emperor at the time, had just expelled about A.D. 51-52. He just had expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And so the Jews were just, they were just thorns in the side. But if they kept quiet, they were okay. So at, especially in these small provinces, and they played the game. So they're going and saying, look, because <clears throat> the Jews and Christians were considered the same by the Romans at the time. Until, the, until really down in here, what we're going to see. So they recruit these guys and they say, let's go. These guys are, they're talking about, uh, they're talking against Rome. 
So they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So the house of Jason, <clears throat> this guy's, I think he's mentioned once maybe again in, the, in one of Paul's endings of one of his letters. I'm not sure about that, but I think. But who do you think Jason was in this? The think about Jason. I mean, he's a, Paul comes and speaks in the synagogues for two or three weeks. And Jason isn't a Jewish name, so this is a Gentile. But who can fill in some color in this guy's character? Anybody? Um, We may be speculating, but let's take the context. They're in Thessalonica. He, He went to the synagogues, and then there's this guy, Jason. At his house, the Jews decide to raid and mob his house. What do you think's going on there? Yep. Yeah, that's very good. They didn't give them up either because they ended up going to jail. Yeah, they were protecting them. So, I'm sorry, Claudia. I didn't mean to step on you there. He did protect Paul and Silas because he went to jail instead of Had some level of means because he was able to post bond. Yep. So Jason was a prominent figure probably in the church over in Thessalonica. He was probably everything that was just mentioned and also probably had um, you know, some sort of house church and probably was a center hub for Christians in that area. And so he was known. Um, and so this guy was is immediately, you know, maybe he became converted from Paul's, you know, from the, uh, from the offshoots of Paul's first missionary journey. Maybe he just became converted here because this isn't like in real time. There's time that was spent there. There's probably a, a year or six months that Paul was floating through here. So they were seeking to bring him out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. So they dragged him out of the house. It's that same word that we've been seeing around, drag. As Jesus um, says that the Father must drag us to him. This is that same word. And so some brethren before the cities, they were shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Does this sound familiar? Where do we hear that accusation before? Right. Jesus was, was accused of the same thing. He is saying that, you know, he's saying that he's the Messiah. But the Jews, being hypocritical, went to the Roman army, Pilate, and said, we have no king but Caesar. Anybody who is opposing, anybody who endorses Jesus as king is opposing Caesar. 
And what did that make Pilate do? Well, it made him sweat a little bit. Because Pilate doesn't want any problems, especially with somebody that's claiming to be king. So this was a really, this was a big catchphrase to get Christians in trouble quick. Get Christians in trouble, mention that they worship another king. Want to be belonged, I'm sorry, want to fit in, want to merge into the culture, want to not upset the apple cart. They would have never mentioned this. But yet, in our culture, <clears throat> we very rarely want to mention that Jesus is king. We very rarely hear that. It's either associated with kingdom theology, which is oftentimes uh, um, associated with the apostolic movement, which is very much into social justice and, and um, Lib, uh, liberation theology and black liberation theology where, where Jesus is uh, speaking only to the poor and those that are social outcasts or those that are looked down upon and the only way the kingdom will come is when society gets better first and then that's how we bring the kingdom in. So a lot of times that was very popular back in the 80s and 90s and it's even still popular today and, and there's, there's different off, offshoots of it but, you know, we say kingdom, we say king. What are some of the other reasons why we, we think we don't hear the word, that we don't proclaim that Jesus as king? What are some of the other ex- things we hear? I just don't think we have a context for that. You don't think? Or, or, yeah, I don't think in general. Yeah. In our, this culture. Right. There's no... It's not a monarchy. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, so I think, not that, it, that we shouldn't, that's not a reason to... Claim it. I'm, I'm just, I just wonder. That's why, even as believers, we don't think that way because we don't have that context. And when we think of kings, and we just think of these this royalty around the world that just sits and they don't do anything. They have no power. Yeah. yeah. They have absolutely. Yeah. They yeah. have No power. So. And here, they, they it would have been just the shock, you know. This, yeah. Like, you can't say that. Even if the Jews, that's why they were so hypocritical. They really didn't yeah. honor these people, you know, the kings, they, but only when it suited them. But to say that, that's why the whole city can be in an uproar and they can be all upset with them. But if we go around saying that Jesus is king, that is true. But I think people, I don't know, yeah. I don't know that. No, true. that's very good. It's, uh, it's not a part of our, it doesn't, the, the, the context of king, the nature of a kingship, doesn't really fit well into our mindset because, you know, the closest thing that we could think of is maybe the president. Um, but even then, the president doesn't have all rule. You know, we have the other off the branches of government that balance it out. Um, I and think, in fact, people sort of, to have, um, you know, even here in, the, in, in, our, in our situation here, one person having all authority is looked down upon. What do we call that in our culture? Right, that's a dictator. Or a dictator if it's secular. Yeah. Or, <laughs> Putin. <laughs> or if it's if it's if it's theological, we call it a a theocracy. Now we don't want to ever say that either, because when we say theocracy, we often get uh, the vibe of uh, you know the medieval times where you know the king and the pope and the priest and everybody was that the, they all ruled the, the king ruled over the church and state and they were one 
you're going to live in our country, you're going to follow our religion. That's what people think of as theocracy. Um, and, and also, anyone else have anything why, why we don't really, why this concept of king? Sharia law, yeah, yep. And that does that work? Why doesn't it work? Why doesn't forcing religion on somebody work? Can't change the heart. Can't force conversions. I mean, you may be able to, but they're not going to be authentic. That's not what the Bible teaches. But it does teach a theocracy. It does teach that Jesus is King of Kings and and Lord of Lords. He is over all, but they don't understand that he has put in a structure of secular government, and he has put in the structure of, um, of uh, the sword or law enforcement. And although he isn't making, just because God is over them doesn't mean they have to be Christian. He is over them by authority. Now, as Christians... As the church, we have to be the prophetic voice, the, the, the spiritual voice to those entities. So when they do things that's contrary to the law of God, God calls us to say, hey, wait a minute, where's the standard here? What are you standard? What standard are you using for right or wrong? Because God is overall. And so there's nothing wrong with saying that. We're not saying we're telling you you got to convert to Christianity but we're also saying that you are, in fact, following the laws of a God, lowercase g, by making laws. People say that you, can, you can't really separate. Um, they, people say that, well, we want church and state to be separate. And I agree. The church should never rule over the state. The state should never rule over the church. The family shouldn't be ruled over by the church. And vice versa. It's four forms of government that God has put in, that, that God teaches us in Scripture. We see civil government, we see church government, we see family government, and we see self-government. But all of these must adhere to some sort of standard. Now, whether that standard is going to be from God of the Bible, and if not, it's going to be from something else. It's going, it has to be, whether it's secular humanism or it's relativism, or it's uh, utilitarianism, where the greatest good for the greatest amount is what matters. Um, And all these things are not God. So as Christians, we have to work strategically, not only as people that are preaching the gospel for conversions, because when people's hearts get changed in those areas, then they'll be more apt to do the things that are unto the Lord. Uh, But we also have to do it because we are living in our king's world. And it would if I came into any of your houses and started rearranging the furniture, you would say, you know, if I came in your house, Jerry, and you were there and your mom and dad weren't home and I started rearranging your furniture, you would say to me, you know, my dad's not going to be too happy with that. <laughs> What's that? Yes, yeah, that doesn't matter. Yeah, right. <laughs> Or Claudia, right. I'm speaking of the wrong one. Yeah, mom and dad wouldn't be happy with that. And I'm saying, you know, Jerry, you don't understand. This is what works best for your house. Trust me. I know. Just just listen. All right. And Jerry doesn't agree. So they, they move the, the couch, you know, 
back and I just set it on fire. You know, I, I create that void. So now it's that false flag. You know, hey, it was a fire. Now you need that. Now you need help, whatever. But you would never allow that to happen because my authority as a church leader is in church. Now I could go to Chris's house and visit and say, um, you know, Chris, look, uh, you know, uh, all of these pictures on the wall of Hitler aren't really good. You know, <laughs> you, you should take your swastikas down. You know what I mean? Um, but hey, it's your house, brother. You know, I'm just speaking. I'm prophetically speaking in you that this is not a God. Like, God forbid he would never do that. And he has no inclination to do that. So don't take that the wrong way. But I'm just being extreme. As a church pastor, I could do that. I could go in his home and I could say, hey, you know, the way that you talk to your son, brother, let's talk about that. You know, you, you, you talk to him wrong. Or I could say to him, hey, the way you spoke to your son was really great. It's encouraging to you, right? I can prophetically speak the word of God to that. But I can't go in and rule his house. Because God doesn't allow me to do that in this authority. And the same with the government. The government can't come into the church and say, you need to start doing things a little different. Now, if we're breaking a law, that's different. Right? If we're breaking a law that's, that's, not, that's, that's according to Scripture, now if that law is I'm preaching Jesus, then I'm going to keep breaking the law, preaching Jesus. But if, that, you know, if we're doing something weird, they can come in and they, they, can, they could speak into us <laughs> and warn us, but they can't rule. <clears throat> and all of this is based upon the structure that Christ has put in the scriptures and the fact that he is king over the world is why we obey that process and why we obey that theology. Does everybody understand where I'm going? Okay. If you have questions or you disagree, it's okay. You can bring it up. Uh, we can definitely talk about it or if you have, um, if you don't understand. But, um, I think, so getting back to the question, why don't we use kingship as part of our language? It's a very, it's a very in context, it's um, if you had to write down a definition of the gospel, most people, when you say, what is the gospel, they go immediately to the results of the gospel, which is getting saved, getting transformed, getting sins forgiven, um, uh, being going to heaven when I die, being raised from the dead, having a relationship with Jesus, all that stuff I agree with. But those are results of the gospel. What's it say in Romans 1? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those that believe. So it, the gospel is an announcement, and in the context of the New Testament, gospel was well known within the Roman world, like we would say parade, or we would say um, proclamation, or you know, we would say inauguration for the president. That's how well known the word gospel was, because Caesar used to pre preach the gospel. Caesar is king. And that's what they used to proclaim. Heralds would go out in front of him into towns like uh, Thessalonica, like Philippi, like Jerusalem, and they would say, there's a new king, Caesar Augustus, or Caesar Claudius, or whoever it was. And he is going to bring peace and prosperity. He is your savior. He is the son of God, Julius Caesar. 
And that's what was read. So when, when Jesus came and said, gospel, the kingdom is here, this was a very strong, this had a very strong political vibe to it. Very strong. That was political language that they were using for Jesus. So the gospel is the, the, the gospel is an event and it is a proclamation. It is the proclamation that it is really the royal proclamation that Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, suffered, died, and was buried, and rose on the third day and ascended to the Father where he sits at the right hand of power. That's the gospel message. Now we can go into all the other responses and results of the gospel. In the house of the gospel, yes, but I believe that we've lost that. We've lost that authoritative aspect of the gospel when not only when we're preaching it, because we should preach that, but it should be in the back of our minds when we meet people in their sin, when we meet people in their trial, when we meet people in their tribulation, when we, when we have to keep that as, as the overarching theme and foundation that Jesus is king. And I think too that one of the biggest objections of this is people say, does it look like he's king? I mean, why is there all this stuff going on in the world? Why isn't he stopping it, right? We have all those objections. The same objections we get with an atheist when we say God is a God of love and they say, well, why, all, why is all this pain happening? Why is all this bad stuff happening? So we, we have to explain that Jesus, and here's the real, here's the rub, is that is Jesus's, like, first of all, kingship, is, we, like Claudia said, it's hard for us to fit it in our context. But what's even more difficult to fit into our context is the nature of Jesus's kingship. Because that's where we lose everybody. Because Jesus's way to rule and reign is not through militant power. It's through his kingdom is what they call an upside down kingdom. He rules through tribulation he, he rules through taking situations, pain, tribulation, trial, and through that, with the love of the gospel and the love of God and the love of Christ, he brings forth his will. And the kingdom that Jesus is over here, this world, he is over the physical aspects of the world, but his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And that spiritual is going to fully meet the physical in the future. But right now, it's spiritually raining. So when you are out, when you, like right now, we have this big um, thing in our, in, our, in our time where when a country wants to uh, take over another country, they go in by force. Like what's happening right, what's about to happen right now in Ukraine. The Russians are about to invade, I, from what I last read. And um, they will go in with the tanks and they will go in with high technological weapons, Right. But there's also other ways to take over a country. They do it over years. They'll go in and infiltrate the social structure. They'll infiltrate the government. They'll, they'll come up with new political parties. They do it slower. And that's more like the type of kingdom that Jesus has. <laughs> He's not like a take over the country by, you know, doing bad things. I'm not trying to imply that. But Jesus has authority over the, the, the earth, but the battle is still going on. 
If Russia invades Ukraine and they go to the capital and they put their flag there, they could claim authority over the Ukraine. Not that I'm for this or against it because I don't understand it to give an opinion yet. But there would still be battles and skirmishes to fight probably for many years in that country, even though Russia may take it over. And even though Jesus is is enthroned as king, the way that he's bringing in his kingdom to the fullest under his sovereignty is through his people in the Holy Spirit inside of them. Through the proclamation of his gospel, through the changing of hearts, and through those times where we see love shine out in the face of hate and danger and pain, we engage that. And sin and evil, we engage that with love in the gospel and correction according to the scriptures. And that's how his kingdom is coming in. So another hard thing to understand for people to understand is the nature, is, is, is the kingship, but also the nature of his kingdom. And once you understand the nature of his kingdom, things start to get really interesting because now we all see that we are soldiers and we all see that we can have a big impact on turning away from sin, living holy lives, letting people see our lives, not as a braggadocious, look at me, I'm a Christian, but people seeing you love, seeing love in action. And that's how the kingdom gets built in the conversions and the gospel being preached. That's why we, we publicly proclaim the gospel with, the, with, with, our, with our Lord's Supper and with baptism. Those are two things that God wants us to practice as a church to be public so that people can see and we can understand as well. So, so to, to bring it back to this, this is what I believe Paul was teaching, especially in these towns here and especially throughout the book of Acts. How many times is heaven mentioned in the book of Acts? Anyone know? Zero. It's not mentioned. How many times is love mentioned in the book of Acts? Zero. How many times is love seen in the book of Acts? Almost on every page. How many times is the resurrection preached in the book of Acts? Almost on every page. How much is the kingdom preached in the book of Acts? Almost in every sermon. And it's always followed by Jesus' proclamation as Christ, that according to the scriptures, he had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he is the Christ. And this is what they were preaching. The decrees of Caesar were contrary to this. Why? Anybody know? Caesar declared himself God. Yeah. Caesar. This is right in the face of Caesar. And so we have to understand that. Put yourself in this context here and see the boldness that, that, that these people have in Christ, the boldness that they have in the Holy Spirit. Um, just incredible, the things that they endured. Uh, and, and without doubt, just their, their face like flint, and they're just like, we saw the risen Christ. You know, we're, seeing, we're seeing God work. But more importantly, and we're going we're gonna to probably go into this next week, they matched up what all these beliefs were, not as something new, not as like, oh, there's this brand new teaching now where there's another king other than God. No. This was the mantra of the Jewish people when Christ came in, 
right? What's the mantra of the, of the zealots, right, right now, like that are parking their trucks in, in, uh, on all the lanes and highways going into Canada? Their mantra is what? Freedom, right? They're, 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 they're blocking and they're, they're protesting for freedom. That's their mantra. The mantra of the United States of America is freedom, right? The mantra for the Jewish people was no king but God. That was their mantra. That's what they would write around. They would, like if they had spray paint, that's what they would paint on tag up the walls, no king but God, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what Caesar put everywhere, son of Caesar Augustus, son of God, or Caesar, whoever it was, the you know, son of God, Julius Caesar, well, or Augustus was the first one. So <clears throat> their mantra out of the Maccabean Rebellion, during the Maccabean Rebellion, uh, Joseph Maccabe- uh, Maccabees, that was the, what fueled them to go in and take that Seleucid Empire out of the temple and those pagan rulers where they were sacrificing pigs on the altar and doing all that stuff. He raised up an army, and their mantra was no king but God. And everybody was like, this is the Messiah. And he was like, I'm not. I'm not from the tribe of Judah. I wasn't born in Bethlehem. <laughs> this is, it's not me, but I'm zealous for God. And so those, that zeal carried on, just like the zeal from the, 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 the Revolutionary War is what fuels uh, our, our sense of freedom, right? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, depending on where you lay politically. But ultimately, that used to be what it was and, and what the majority is. Even, even um, uh, in, in all camps, everybody wants freedom. So this was no king but God was this incredibly old, uh, uh, powerful Old Testament God proclamation that carried over into the New Testament as no king but Christ. And they weren't talking about two different people. These were, these were monotheistic creational Jews, meaning one God who created the heavens and the earth and is over them all, same God, Old Testament, New Testament. And so they're, they're, they're carrying this over. And so the ne- next week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, <clears throat> okay, so how do, we, how do we know this? And we, we're going to follow the example of the Bereans. They searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. They searched the Old Testament scrolls to see if, in fact, Jesus was king. And that king did, in fact, have to suffer, die, and rise again on the third day. And that's what we must do as well, is search the scriptures as our ultimate foundation. So we'll, rather than jump into that now and cut it really, really short, I, w- I really want to spend some time in that. So we'll, we'll, we'll finish with, they stirred up the crowd, <clears throat> verse 8, and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received the pledge, as Chris said, they, he, he, this is a bail, probably, from Jason... Uh, and others, they released them. So Jason had to bail himself out. Everybody can be bought, especially during that time. It's like, pay up, we'll let you out. But they probably threatened him as well. And, um, and that's what the last that we hear about him. So we have a few more minutes. Does anybody want to add anything? Any thoughts to it? Any applications that you could think of? Turned, we don't present the Lord as this personal Savior, 
though he is, but only that. Like, mm-hmm. you can't just um, yeah. him as only that. Right. You know? um, the me and my but, salvation sort yeah. of approach. Yeah. But, it, but clearly, his kingdom coming begins with, within each person. Yeah. Like that change of heart. Mm-hmm. That hopefully then within families, within, you know, and it, and it spreads from there. Right? Yeah. That's how it's spreading. But that it doesn't stay a personal thing. Yeah. It can be the, the authority of God over every human being. Is that, I, that's one of the things I like to do when I'm sharing the gospel is I always use this. Those of you know, that know and all the stuff, I've talked about this many times with the youth as well, is that where's your truth coming from? So that's what I always want to know. When Pete, everybody has a claim. When they share it, when you talk to a non-believer or even a, a believer of some sort, they have a claim of truth. And let them say it. Well, this is what I think. Oh, really? Wow, that's interesting. Where are you getting that from? And so as soon as you go to that, it opens the door for that idea of, well, God is authoritative and God's word is authority. And, and from that bridge, it's very easy to transition over to kingship. Jesus is king. You know, because of, from an authoritative perspective, he's king. Because he's not here physically yet, but he will be. And so whatever they say their truth is, you could always challenge that by asking them, how do they know, and all the other different apologetic techniques we've talked about, or just letting them talk, and then you say, well, here's what I believe truth is, and here's why. The Bible, and you could go right to the scriptures and give them the word of God. And you could talk about, the kingdom of God, and what their purpose is in life. Because people are very interested in that question. Why am I here? Well, you're here because Christ has a very specific purpose for you to renew you and make you that new human being and be useful in his kingdom, to build for it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to change your life in that way. And so just not a lot of tweaks on how we've been traditionally taught, just a little bit additions and sprinkles. Not saying that going to somebody, sometimes you do have to stay really focused on the personal aspect of salvation with people because that's where they're at and that's where you have to meet them. So don't think that there's this blanket, you know, meet people where they're at and speak to them, uh, the scriptures, and you could always expand from there. That's just my, my advice and opinion. So thank you, Claudia. Anyone else? Gab, you've been quiet these past few weeks. I think this practice, the singing practice, that's what it is. She's preserving her voice for the worship service. (laughs) So I like picking on you guys. So anyway, all right. So we'll ask Chris to close us in prayer and then we will, we'll, we'll break. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for these words you've given us, this uh, historical record, Lord, for um, just the uh, boldness of that first century church, uh, what they face, Lord. I pray that we would be encouraged to proclaim your sovereignty over uh, our world, Lord, to others, to uh, remind them of what they already know and and to teach them and preach to them what they don't know, Lord, and that is your truth. I pray that you would also bless the remainder of our morning here, our service, Lord. I pray that you would just move our hearts to focus on you and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.